Welcome once again to the second wave of quarantined evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let us once again start tonight with a moment of thought for the precious lives snuffed out in yet another act of senseless gun violence. In 2020, gun violence became the number one killer of children in the U.S., surpassing motor vehicle deaths. 4,368 children were killed by guns, nearly two-thirds of which involved homicides. This is a combination of a rising tide of gun violence and increased road safety. One of those is not like the other. A letter to the New England Journal of Medicine notes that this is part of a trend of gun violence rise during the pandemic, but cautions that this does not mean that gun deaths will decrease as we move on to new stages of the pandemic. And nearly 30% were suicides. We know that there are good statistics that say that if a gun is in the house, suicides are much more likely, especially among young men. And so it's a pretty straightforward correlation that if there isn't a gun available in the house, you're less likely to be able to commit suicide. And so that is really a thing that is a fact that we know about. And of course, the other demographics should not surprise you. For instance, gun violence disproportionately affects Black children and adolescents who were four times more likely to die as their white counterparts. The next most affected group was American Indians. And there is a whole host of reasons why we continue to fail Native Americans and American Indians in this country, um, as well as Native Alaskans. Uh, it's just, that's a whole nother story, a whole nother rant for a whole nother day. Males were six times as likely as females to be killed. Washington, D.C., Louisiana, and Alaska topped the country for regional gun violence. The authors of the letter note that work has been continuous since the 1960s to prevent motor vehicle deaths, but we steadfastly refuse to take action on guns and haven't even loosened gun laws. And so, yeah. Holden Thorpe, editor-in-chief of Science, in an editorial spoke extremely plainly and I think very forcefully. Um, this is definitely, I would encourage you to read the entire uh, letter. It is very powerful. He writes, 
Although opponents of sensible gun control, the kind that prevails throughout most of the civilized world, continue to put the spotlight on the shooter's motivations or unstable mental states, these are cynical diversions from the one obvious truth. The common thread in all of the country's revolting mass shootings is the absurdly easy access to guns. The science is clear, restrictions work, and it's likely that even more limitations would save thousands of lives. So why not take the laws much further, as other countries have done? The alternative is painfully obvious. Living with more and more senseless carnage, courtesy of the National Rifle Association and their well-funded political lackeys. And so he really makes a call uh, to say that scientists should not sit on the sidelines and that they should do more research into the public health implications of gun violence and finished with this truth. If children do not feel safe, they cannot learn. A country that does not learn cannot thrive. A nation of children threatened by gun violence does not have a future. And he finished it up with a call to action for those of us who care about the victims of gun violence to get out and protest, for scientists and people who believe the actual science about gun violence to go out there and to make this a civil rights issue because no child should have to fear going to school. We are absolutely appalled when it happens in other countries. We were appalled at the fact that women in Afghanistan weren't allowed to go to school. Of course, we obviously got over that um, because we did not actually do much to really uh, help women in Afghanistan in the end. Um, but of course, that's another very complicated political situation where I'm not sure there is any good answer. So I don't want to uh, dwell too much on that. Uh, particular um, connection. But I think that this letter is just extremely moving. And I wish more scientists would come out and say this sort of thing. We need to stop pretending that there isn't good reproducible evidence that reduces access to guns, that reducing access to guns reduces gun violence. The mental health of Americans is not unique. The social plight of people in America is not unique. And yet we are unique in how many people each year are killed with guns and how easy it is to get a gun in this country. We need to stop acting like the right to bear arms is an immutable human right. It's not. Human rights are things like access to safe water and things that should be human rights like access to good health care. The access to a gun should not be considered an immutable human right. It is a remnant of a time when the country still thought it was A-OK to own other human beings. And to that end, Black people have never been afforded the same rights as white people to carry guns in this country. 
the Second Amendment continues to be deeply racist. And we know this from the 1960s when the Black Panthers tried to exercise their right to openly carry arms. They followed all of the laws. And so a law was passed in California and signed by St. Ronald of Reagan uh, to actually curtail their ability because Black people were dangerous if they carried guns, according to the white ruling class. And so things have not changed since the founding of this country, where obviously the right to bear arms was only for white people. And so it's extremely important not to forget that detail. Now, um, for some actual suggestions, uh, one science-based suggestion by researchers is to increase the age for gun ownership from 18 to 21. Basically, the idea is that if you can't drink beer, you shouldn't be able to buy a gun. And while, yes, some will argue that at 18, you can go to the army and learn how to use a gun, that is in a controlled situation and even then, I would say that 18-year-olds are not equipped to be soldiers. So I would start a whole nother argument with you about the fact that uh, 18 is too young to be a soldier. And so school safety researchers point out also that 18-year-olds are still developing mentally and are frankly too impulsive. Schools should also be softening rather than hardening with security measures like metal detectors and school cops that do not make students feel safer. Schools should instead focus on the social and emotional needs of students. Metal detectors, school cops, all of that is, just like it is at airports, political theater. It is not something that actually makes children safer in the long run. Our first preventative strategy should be to make sure kids are respected, that they feel connected and belong in schools, said Otis Johnson Jr. of Johns Hopkins University's Center for Safe and Healthy Schools. Kids should have regular instruction around conflict resolution, stress management, and building empathy for themselves and for their fellow classmates. Most school shooters have had a history of being bullied. Training teachers and school officials in anti-bullying, having adult supervision, old-fashioned hall monitors, and the ability to anonymously report bad behavior can all help, according to Jackie Nowicki, who has led multiple school safety investigations for the U.S. Government Accountability Office. But our current situation is so ridiculous and shameful that people fighting for their lives and their country in Ukraine took time out to send condolences to the families uh, in Uvalde, Texas. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. Deeply saddened by the news of the murder of innocent children in Texas, President Volodymyr Zelensky wrote in a tweet, 
sincere condolences to the families of the victims, the people of the U.S., and POTUS over this tragedy. The people of Ukraine share the pain of the relatives and friends of the victims and all Americans. He is the only person that I will accept saying anything approaching the thoughts and prayers platitude. Thoughts and prayers will not bring back those fourth graders who had their whole lives ahead of them. It is time to realize that the NRA, conservatives, and anyone else who resists sensible gun laws are committed to sacrificing children on the altar of political expediency and power. They showed this after Columbine, they showed this after Parkland, and they're showing it yet again. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. When conservatives tell you that they are very sorry, but there's nothing they can do, don't believe them. It seems these days, and this is my opinion, But it seems these days that conservatives only care about children until they've left the womb. Once they've left the womb, they are on their own. Hyperbole? Look at how they voted on the baby formula bill. 192 Republicans voted against a bill to aid the FDA in helping address the baby formula shortage. Now, full disclosure, 12 Republicans did vote for that bill. But... Most of them said it was because basically they have a grudge with the FDA. And so they refused to give them funding to help get baby formula to people because they don't like the FDA. All right. I could literally obviously rant about this all night, but that's not what this show is supposed to be about. I'm sure my friends on civil politics will have more to say about it. And so, yeah, I just, I'm so angry and I'm so sick of hearing people talk about the sacrosanct, uh, the sanc, that the Second Amendment is sacrosanct, sacrosanct. I'm so angry I can't even say the word. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm sick of it. I think it is ridiculous and there is nothing about it that cannot be changed. It is not immutable. We have changed many things in the constitution. We have lots of amendments to the constitution. There is no reason why we can't amend the constitution to create sensible gun laws. And of course, we'd probably have to do that at this point because the other thing is that if we pass any sensible gun laws, they'll probably struck, be struck down by the current Supreme Court, which is, again, in my opinion, full of Christian nationalists and basically fascists. Um, the majority, obviously. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a little bit tired and angry and just I'm just done with this ridiculous idea that guns are an integral part of American society. They have been integral parts of other countries and when those countries had terrible awful 
massacres, they changed their laws and they changed the way that they thought about guns. It is not impossible. Okay, I'm really going to stop now um, and move on to the normal uh, topics for this show. We're going to skip COVID for tonight because I think that we've had enough talking about sadness and terribleness. Uh, and so basically one line, the, the usual, the news is the usual. COVID is on an upsurge. It doesn't seem to be becoming any less virulent. So, um, one of the newer Omicron variants was actually m- caused more severe, uh, symptoms than the previous one, not by a ton, but still that is not the trend you want. You don't want it becoming more, um, virulent, you want it to become less, but it is not yet. Uh, and it, it is sticking around and a lot of people think that it's something we are just going to have to live with, uh, like the flu, um, which as we, I think, often forget does actually kill tens of thousands of people each year. Um, and so, uh, last year, I think it was 20,000 people. Um, and so, yeah, um, let's do a quick update on the monkeypox outbreak. However, the CDC has traced nine confirmed and probable cases at this point. Um, we got a new update yesterday, most still to men with a history of international travel, but a few are now suspected to be community transmission. One is actually, I think, an outlier. It is a case of a woman who recently traveled to Africa and uh, monkeypox is actually endemic to many parts of Africa. So it's almost certain that she um, was infected in the sort of uh, quote unquote normal way. And so it continues to be probable that the male travelers picked up the virus in Europe or other places which have uh, been a part of the outbreak. Europe really has seen the largest amount with the um, England coming in at the top, and I think Spain coming in a close second. And so the outbreak continues to be most prevalent among men who identify as gay, bisexual, or who are men who have sex with men. Um, Because there are some men who have sex with men, but do not identify as either gay or bisexual. Um, You know, labels. (laughs) Um, And so cases now worldwide have now reached 219. Now, researchers suspect that this is due to infection by close contact with blisters on an infected person's skin. So again, um, we talked a little bit about the the, um, modality of this last time. And so I don't think there's any kind of change to it being sexually transmitted in the clinical sense but most likely is being transmitted by close contact, um, probably sexual, between people where one of them has actual blisters um, that are able to infect the other person's skin. And, um, you know, we do need to continue to study and really work on this and contain it. But in fact, the EU is actually working on purchasing vaccines and treatments for monkeypox through the Health Emergency and Preparedness Authority, or HERA. 
And so they plan to roll out vaccinations for at-risk populations in the near future. But officials continue to stress that this is not an easily transmittable disease like COVID. It requires prolonged close contact with an infected person, and thus the chances of catching it are very low if you are on any kind, if you are outside any of these circles. And so the people that they're going to be offering prophylactics to are people who are family members of those already confirmed to be infected, healthcare workers who came into contact with them, those sorts of people. They're not going to be trying to inoculate all of Europe with the monkeypox vaccine. That's not, doesn't seem to be necessary at all. Um, and I think that if they're able to do that, we've already, in America, some of the uh, cases have already been treated that way. The one in Boston has and a couple of others. And so hopefully now that people are getting uh, mobilized and um, they'll be able to actually close down these um, areas of transmission and we will start to see the cases go down and not continue to go up. So let's hope because the last thing we need is another infectious disease roaming around the world. And while this is a mild disease and most people recover, again, it does potentially have a fatality rate. And so I have not heard of any fatalities yet from this outbreak, but it is a possibility. And so anything that we can do to avoid that is extremely important. Okay. On another front, new research confirms what most of us have always suspected, that decriminalization of marijuana does not necessarily lead to a marked increase in the use of other substances by adolescents and young adults. A team of researchers from the University of Washington collaborated with a colleague at the Multnomah County Health Department and Oregon Health Authority Public Health Division and have published a recent paper in the Journal of Adolescent Health. Washington State decriminalized recreational use of marijuana in 2012. The researchers found an overall downward trend for past month alcohol use, heavy episodic drinking, or HED, cigarette use, and past year pain reliever misuse, such as opioids, for young adults between 2014 and 2019. One of the interesting things they found, though, and honestly not surprising, was an increase in the use of e-cigarettes starting in 2016, the first year for which that question was asked. And so these trends were similar to national trends, except that the alcohol use decrease was larger in Washington. Now, they cautioned that inferring that the expansion of legalized marijuana directly led to decreases in alcohol, cigarette, or non-prescribed opioid use is not applicable to this study because they did not do a cross-state comparison. And so these drops are similar to trends that were seen across the country. And so you'd really have to dig a lot deeper into the data to see if that was the case. So they're not making a claim that this absolutely shows that if you uh, increase access to marijuana, that 
these other factors decrease. They're very clear about that. But again, um, what they did find was that use of marijuana increased among those 21 to 25. Um, And when that happened, there was not an accompanying increase in the use of other types of harmful substances at the population level, despite the fact that studies have shown it can increase at the individual level. They did find a statistically significant decoupling between marijuana use and both HED and pain reliever misuse for those aged 21 to 25, but not for general alcohol use or cigarettes. They found no significant decoupling among those under 21. What that means is that um, for people who increase their marijuana use in that 21 to 25 range, they actually um, did not have a increase as well in either um, HED or pain reliever misuse. And they suspected that's because they found that using marijuana solved that uh, need in their lives. And so they were specializing in simply using marijuana. Now, as, as I noted, they suspect that this is mainly due to the increased availability of marijuana, as well as its perception, um, most likely as less risky. And so they did note that those who used marijuana, even occasionally, were still more likely to engage in other substance usage, which isn't terribly surprising. The researchers note that a limitation to the study is that they were using data from self-reported surveys, which means that uh, you might have some uh, not exactly honest answers, especially from those under 21. And so they could have also been subject to selection bias in the pool of respondents. So, you know, the kind of people who are going to take this kind of a survey might be a self-selecting group. But it seems to be a pretty solid result in terms of the basic finding that decriminalizing marijuana did not lead to a runaway effect with other substances. And so I think that is definitely a um, good result. And I think that it makes a lot of sense that, you know, I mean, we've seen that in Massachusetts, I think. I don't think we've seen any kind of huge uptick in other drug use. And so realistically, because it's such a new decriminalization, most of those 21 to 25-year-olds in those years they had already been doing other substances, teenagers. Um, and so this is not something that was a huge effect for them. Um, okay, we are going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And then we will come back and we are going to talk about uh, some of the other health things that are going on. And we're mostly going to talk about Um, antibiotic resistance and ways to combat it. So that'll be really good. Um, And so, yeah, please uh, take a moment to enjoy some PSAs and some show promos. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. 
By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are, I hope, still listening to, or if you aren't, welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. And as I advertised before the break, we are going to talk about uh, some news on the front of antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. And so the first story we're going to talk about is from researchers at the Rockefeller University, and they have synthesized a new antibiotic developed using computer models of bacterial gene products. The compound, Selagicin, works well in mice and has even been effective against drug-resistant bacteria such as MRSA, 
C. diff, and other bacteria of concern. The new research has been published in the journal Science. This is potentially a breakthrough for creating a whole host of new compounds. This isn't just a cool new molecule. It's a validation of a novel approach to drug discovery, said Rockefeller's Sean F. Brady. This study is an example of computational biology, genetic sequencing, and synthetic chemistry coming together to unlock the secrets of bacterial evolution. And so, yeah, the majority of our antibiotics are derived from compounds developed by bacteria themselves. Only a few antibiotics, are, like penicillin, are actually from fungi or other um, life forms. Aeons of evolution have given bacteria unique ways of engaging in warfare and killing other bacteria without their foes developing resistance, says Brady, the Evnin professor and head of the Laboratory of Genetically Encoded Small Molecules. Researchers spent decades growing and examining strains of Streptomyces or Bacillus but now there's a need for something new. The problem is, is that there are untold millions of bacteria, but only a few grow in laboratory situations. Brady's lab has spent the last 15 years finding antibacterial genes in soil and growing them within more friendly, more lab-friendly bacteria. But this isn't a true solution either. Most antibiotics are derived from genetic sequences that are present in a cluster of different genes, known as biosynthetic gene clusters. And these function as a unit to collectively code for a series of proteins. But most of these are inaccessible with current technology. Bacteria are complicated, and just because we can sequence a gene doesn't mean we know how the bacteria would turn it on to produce proteins, said Brady. There are thousands and thousands of uncharacterized gene clusters, and we have only ever figured out how to activate a fraction of them. And so this is a big deal. (laughs) And even though we might think of bacteria as being very uh, uncomplicated animals, shall we say, you know, they actually have been evolving pretty much the longest. Uh, Not all of the strains that we have today are, you know, ancient, but bacteria have been on the planet for a long time. And so their basic ability to evolve and survive is pretty deeply embedded. Uh, they have had a lot of time to figure out how to be able to stay alive and how they are able to evade people trying to or other organisms trying to kill them. And so researchers turned to algorithms. They were able to feed genetic sequences into an algorithm, which could then derive what kinds of compounds these genes might create. Because remember, uh, not only do you need to know the gene that actually makes something, 
you need to know, in order to figure that out, you need to know about the genes and the proteins they code for, but also the non-coding areas that talk about um, control expression and things like that. And so there's a lot of different parts in the genetic code. And if you just look at the genetic code, that doesn't really tell you enough. And so when you turn AI to it, though, it can make these educated guesses. And so basically the algorithms give them a bunch of options and then the researchers can create those compounds and see what happens. The molecule that we ended up with is presumably, but not necessarily, what those genes would produce in nature, Brady says. We aren't concerned if it's not exactly right. We only need the synthetic molecule to be close enough that it acts similarly to the compound that evolved in nature. And so postdoctoral associates Zhang Zhang Wang and Bimal Kerala from the Brady Lab began combining, began combing through a database, looking for bacterial genes that were predicted to be involved in producing antibiotics, but hadn't been examined before. They honed in on the SIL gene cluster, which was proximate to other genes in make, that make antibiotics. So, you know, a pretty good guess. They fed its genetic code into the algorithm which then suggested several possible compounds the genes might produce. And so basically it's a, it's a game of trial and error. And so you synthesize these compounds and then you basically put them in with the bacteria and see what happens. And so that is how they found collagen. I always have a trouble figuring out how one is supposed to pronounce uh, compound names uh, for drugs. Um, <laughs> I think this is collagen. Um, that's generally what, generally the way that they do it. Anywho, this compound reliably killed gram-positive bacteria in the lab, didn't harm human cells, and once prepped for animals, successfully treated bacterial infections in mice. It was very good at fighting through antibiotic resistance, even when the researchers specifically designed organisms to fight its antibiotic properties. It still was able to get through. And so they found that it works by binding two molecules, C55P and C55PP, both of which are important for maintaining bacterial cell walls. Antibiotics such as bacitracin bind to one of those two molecules, but not both, which means that the bacteria can invade such drugs by basically making do with the other molecule. And so the team believes that by taking both of these molecules out of the equation, this proves to be a fatal blow for the bacteria because without a cell wall, the bacteria disintegrates, basically. Now, silagicin has many hoops to go through before it might be added to the arsenal of human antibiotics. But it's more than just a new potential antibiotic 
Once again, it is a powerful proof of concept. This work is a prime of example of what could be found hidden within a gene cluster, Brady says. We think that we can now unlock large numbers of novel natural compounds with this strategy, which we hope will provide an exciting new pool of drug candidates. And of course, this is a huge, huge area of research, which is, of course, uh, basically biomimicry. And so basically you are going out and finding these things that already exist in nature, have already been developed through evolution, and just figuring out how they work and using them to our advantage. It's a lot easier than starting from scratch. And so, especially if you have these bacteria that, again, have spent millions of years figuring out how to kill one another, um, you might as well use those abilities if they, you know, don't harm humans in the process in order to um, combat these diseases. So it's a very good way to find solutions much more quickly than starting from scratch. Now, researchers are also using AI to identify patterns of antibiotic resistance in areas around the world. An international team used mathematical modeling to discover antibiotic resistance patterns using 6.5 million data points from around the globe. These came from medical companies and health agencies and can help show patterns of resistance changes which could aid in mitigation plans. Now, the most complete data set came from Pfizer, which has been tracking this data for 20 years. Having access to this database called Atlas allowed the researchers to see information that was not available in public domain data sets. And so they actually found other um, clusters that they hadn't been able to see before. Now, of course, unsurprisingly, though, they did note a lack of data from Africa. So we really need to be better about that. Professor Robert Beardmore of the University of Exeter's Living Systems Institute and lead author notes, AI is a box of tricks that could help solve the antibiotic resistance problem, but national health agencies need to publish much more data for that to happen. Resistance does seem to be on the increase, but even if it were to come down because of successful health policy changes or new medical technologies, missing data makes those reductions hard to spot. And so having large data sets will make it more possible to track down where resistance is developing, both naturally and through artificial selection processes such as overuse and apply tools to combat the evolutionary arms race between people and bacteria. Pablo Catalan, a data scientist from Madrid, said, Our work on Atlas shows resistance in patients is a dynamic process that contains lots of patterns, and the more data we have, the better we'll understand those patterns and understand when our actions are pulling resistance downward or making things worse. Because we can also do that, because fun fact, humans are pretty good at making things worse. Um, Not going to (laughs) lie. And so, you know, we have created a lot of this antibiotic resistance ourselves. 
by over-prescribing antibiotics for one thing um, and for just the general idea that humans are bad at following good directions like take all of this medicine even after you feel better. Um, so yeah, humans are not the greatest at, we're not our best, we're not our best allies. Let's just put it that way. We're sometimes our own worst enemies. Uh, and to round out our discussion of antibiotics, a novel approach to drug resistant tuberculosis has been described by researchers, uh, in the latest edition of Science Translational Medicine. Marion Flippo and collaborators at the Université de Lille in CIRM and Institut Pasteur de Lille in France have developed a novel small molecule to boost the efficacy of a drug used to combat the deadly disease. Now, tuberculosis is still one of the most deadly infections in the world, second currently only to, well, COVID. Now, the World Health Organization estimates that someone dies of tuberculosis every 22 seconds somewhere in the world. Now, India, China, Indonesia, the Philippines, Pakistan, Nigeria, Bangladesh, and South Africa account for two-thirds, or accounted for two-thirds of all cases in 2020, which is the last year for which a complete data set is available. Now, TB is a sort of, I almost want to say it's a sort of anti-smallpox. It has doggedly stuck around with humans for at least the last three thousand years. Its heyday may have been the 19th century, where in the 1880s it was the leading cause of death, killing one in seven in Europe and the United States, as well as many prominent 19th century figures. And so the development of antibiotics did help knock it down several pegs. But this bacterium the bacterium that causes the disease is adept at evading antibiotics. And so unlike smallpox, it continues to persist and it continues to be a real issue. And of course, the last few years have not helped, not even a little. And so resources that would once have been available to combat TB have had to be repurposed to fight COVID. And as many of the countries affected are considered part of the global south, this has caused real setbacks because they already have, you know, reduced budgets for all healthcare use. Now, the researchers focused on a second line antibiotic called ethionamide. Sorry, I'm bad at this, <laughs> which is usually reserved for multi-drug resistant strains. They had been they had been synthesizing small molecules to determine which ones would enhance the efficacy of ethionamide, which is what's called a prodrug. Such compound compounds are converted by the bacteria themselves into an active substance. And so the drug works because an enzyme, M. MYA converts ethionamide to its active form in which it becomes a bactericide, basically killing the bacteria from the inside. But the ability of some strains of TB to repel the drug means that they are able to thrive in patients who have been infected 
with these multi-drug resistant strains. And thus, without new courses of action, they will potentially die. And so the team found that one of their molecules, SMART 751, reverses the bacteria's ability to evade ethanamide. SMART T751 boosted the efficacy of ethanamide in vitro and in most molecules of acute and chronic TB. SMART 751 also restored full efficacy of ethanamide in mice infected with M. tuberculosis strains carrying mutations in the FA gene, which caused ethanamide resistance. SMART 751 was shown to be safe in tests conducted in vitro and in vivo. Flipo continued, the sensitivity of mycobacterium tuberculosis to antibiotic prodrugs is dependent on the efficacy of the activation process that transforms the prodrugs into their active bacterial forms. Now, this is a really exciting prospect. But as I always have to caution, this is not yet in the stages of clinical trials for human humans. But Flippo is confident it will be efficacious. The team predicts that a mere 25 milligram dose of SMART 751 daily could allow patients to cut their ethanamide dose by fourfold. The lower dose would then help stave off further drug resistance development and would also help combat side effects that are common at the moment. And so we talked about recently that there was a new study that says basically if you can give lower doses uh, for shorter periods of time, then that actually really helps with uh, drug resistance. And so if you're not exposing drugs to either really powerful uh, antibiotics that take out some of take out some of it really quickly but allow others to kind of flourish because they are resistant to that particular antibiotic or if you um, are giving them a long time to kind of fight against the antibiotic that's when you start to see um, resistance forming and so that's also the reason why they always tell you to use all of the medicine because if you don't then what happens is that you've killed off all the easy to kill bacteria, but then the bacteria that aren't as easy to kill are left over and then are able to either recolonize you or colonize someone else. So yeah, definitely if you have to take antibiotics, always take the full dose. And so yeah, I continue to be extremely happy to hear about these sorts of breakthroughs as, uh, as you may know, and as you may share this uh, problem, antibiotic resistance continues to be a literal personal nightmare for me. Like, I am so worried about infectious diseases and especially uh, any um, multi-drug resistant uh, diseases like TB. Uh, I always say I read a story about multi-drug resistant TB when I was way too young and it is stuck with me. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that this is a really important thing that we have to work on. Um, 
And the World Health Organization agrees. They're also worried. They suggest that drug-resistant microbial infections could become the leading cause of death by 2050 if we do not develop new and novel defenses. So let's all work on that real quick. (laughs) Okay, finally tonight, uh, this is a bit of better news. This is definitely a much uh, lighter and more interesting thing than we started out with tonight. Um, but a tiny bit of a warning. I am going to be talking about, um, sex and sexuality. So more just sex. Um, and so, uh, if you don't want someone to hear that, if you don't want to hear about that, um, this is the last story for tonight. So I thank you for listening. Um, but if you're willing to come along with me, please do. It's not going to be anything, uh, lascivious in any way, shape or form. Um, at least from a clinical standpoint. Okay. So, uh, finally tonight, a team of researchers have found that prescribing vibrators to women may indeed be clinically indicated. Alexandra Dubinskaya of Cedar sinai Medical Center and her colleagues published a meta-study of research into the topic recently in the Journal of Urology. They found that there are a wealth of health benefits that can be derived from women's use of vibrators while masturbating, and thus they should be classified as a medical therapy device. Now, some of you may be thinking, didn't I read about this in my women's studies class? at some point, but this is not quackery. They are not trying to heal hysteria or wandering womb syndrome or anything like that. Research suggests that frequent masturbation by women can have positive health effects on both physical and mental health. By looking at a suite of 21 studies, which they whittled down from 558 papers, uh, using some pretty... uh, (laughs) using some pretty easy uh, standards, but, you know, a lot of these papers, they looked for papers that were written, uh, you know, basically about women for women, um, which is why I think it whittled down so much. But anyways, uh, yeah, 558 to 21. A lot of them probably just also weren't, um, they didn't have the right statistical models or the right, um, you know, clinical setups, but um, it does always strike me as, it did strike me as funny the couple of times when I was reading about this. Anyways, they found evidence that vibrator use improved the health of the pelvic floor, reduced vulvar pain, vulvar pain, and led to overall improvement in the women's sexual health. In addition, they found that it can also help with incontinence because it helps strengthen the muscles in the pelvic floor. And so they also noted that the use of a vibrator helps women reduce the time it requires to orgasm. They especially suggest that female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery specialists, and perhaps even doctors in general, should begin prescribing vibrators to their female patients. And now the team will present a detailed account of their findings at the annual scientific meeting of the American Urological Association. And so, yeah, and I think that that is a really good and interesting uh, idea. I think that it makes a lot of sense clinically. And um, yeah, I think that it also 
could help reduce some of the stigma around, um, you know, the female orgasm and the use of, um, items in order to help with that. Um, and obviously this is something that is meant to be specifically for medical health. And I think it's really interesting. I never really thought about the idea of helping to strengthen the muscles of the pelvic floor. Um, cause you know, people are always talking about how it's important to have, uh, good, uh, pelvic floor muscles and that helps a lot with incontinence and with a whole range of other issues. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really interesting and I hope that, you know, people will start to adopt this and that women will be able to access something that is easy to use, easy to get for the most part and could really be medically useful. Um, and so, uh, yeah, just a quick note. I did do a little bit of a deeper dive into the history of vibrators. Um, I'm definitely not going to have time to tell you all about it tonight. Um, and so I will either add it as the last story, uh, next week, or I will write up something on the, uh, website. And if I do that, I'll let you know next week that I've done that instead. Um, but I will say that it's interesting that it actually started out as a device solely for men. So the person who first invented it didn't want to let women near it. Uh, and so he basically thought that women were, you know, hysterical folk. And so he didn't want to have to deal with them. He only treated men, apparently. And so, yeah, it was supposed to be for uh, treating nervous conditions uh, rather than anything else. And so it actually wasn't until the 1970s when uh, radical feminists basically fished vibrators out of their mom's closets in order to uh, claim them as part of their sexual liberation. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, it's something I'd like to write more about or talk more about. But for this week, we are out of time. Um, I hope that all of you have a good and safe week uh, coming up and a good holiday. All right. This has been Evidence-Based Radio. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.